Good morning, greetings, peace be with you. We're going to turn our attention to God's Word now. If you want to open up in your Bibles to Mark 10, Mark chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 31. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. We are so glad to be together on this Mother's Day. We pray that uh, you all are encouraged and edified by uh, God's Word in our midst, but uh, particularly the mothers. We pray that you are edified as we turn our attention. We're not doing a special Mother's Day sermon. We're just continuing on in our sermon series, Mark's Gospel, um, as we... Look now at Mark 10, 17 through 31. Jim Elliott once said that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And of course, if you know who Jim Elliott was, you know that he was a, a, something of a living embodiment of that statement. He gave up all. For the sake of Christ and his gospel, he gave up home and land and comforts and convenience. He gave it all up in order to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to a, a people group who hated him and wanted him dead. And, and in the end, they had their way. Jim Elliot gave up his very life for the sake of Christ and his gospel. But in the end, he would not have been able to keep his life anyways or any of those things. And in giving them up for the sake of Christ and His gospel, He gains something He will never lose. This morning, our text presents to us something of a a photo negative of Jim Elliott, such a stark contrast to his life. And in our text this morning, we find a man who refused to give up what he could not keep and who did not gain what he could not lose. And it's a tragedy, but it's also a word we need to hear because in it, we find warnings we need to heed. And in this text, we find lessons and encouragements regarding discipleship to Jesus Christ. In it, we find precious promises for those who would hand themselves over to Christ entirely and treasure Him above all else. So with that said, let's stand for the reading of God's holy and precious Word in Mark 10, 17-31. Let's listen with reverence, let's listen with joy to the Word of our God. Mark writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, All these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. 
But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we open and declare and hear your word, that Christ would be exalted, that your people would be edified, that the lost would be evangelized, that hearts would be engaged, so that we would all be saved and sanctified conform to the image of your Son, so that He would be treasured above all, above all earthly goods and pleasures, that Christ would be treasured above all in our midst, at any cost. We pray in His name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, of course, we've been in Mark's gospel for, this is the 39th week now. And currently, we're in a a series of passages wherein Jesus foretells his own death and resurrection as the Messiah, and then begins to beckon his hearers to discipleship to him as the crucified Messiah. And he gives various instructions regarding Christian discipleship, calling us to, to pick up our own crosses and to follow him, and he gives us instructions regarding what that looks like. And last week, we heard... Jesus calling us to all come to him as little children, and he sets up children as, children as a sort of model or archetype of disciples because of their utter dependence on the grace and generosity of others. And so he said, you know, if anyone would come to me, if anyone would enter God's kingdom, he must do so like a little child because children come empty-handed, entirely dependent on the generosity of the one that they come to. They must come as Augustus Top Lady once wrote, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's what it means to come as a child. But then this morning our text takes us to a model of what Christ's disciples shouldn't be or aren't, whatever the opposite of a model or archetype is, I don't know. And that's what we see here. And it's, it's as equally as unexpected. If, if it's unexpected for children to be set up as a model for discipleship, What we find here is equally unexpected for what we shouldn't be. What we find here is a rich man. More specifically, a rich man who who wants riches more than he wants Jesus. Here we find a rich man who treasures his his riches more than he treasures the Redeemer. What we find here is tragic. So I want to encourage you this morning to not be like this rich man, but instead to treasure Jesus above all Else, I want you to see this tragic example and outcome and then resolve in your heart to find Jesus as more precious to you than anything else. 
And I have three reasons that you should treasure Jesus above all. From our text here, we see that there's no mere morality that can save. Second, that there's no one that can serve two masters. And third, there's nothing worth choosing over Jesus. That's why we should treasure Jesus. So first, there's, there's no mere morality that can save. Morality, merely mere morality, cannot save you. There are some people in this life who will try to convince you that if you just try to be a good person, keep your nose clean, pay your taxes, you'll live a fulfilled life, and that if there's a God, he'll look on that and honor it and let you into a good place or whatever when the time comes to die. There are some who will tell you that all of this religious stuff is utter nonsense, but if it helps you be a better person, then go crazy. That's not what Christianity is about. And we see that here, while Jesus is setting out on his journey toward Jerusalem, while he's setting out, a man, a wealthy man, he's often called the rich young ruler, we get that from Luke's gospel, Luke tells this story, he calls this man a, a ruler, a rich young ruler, this rich young ruler runs up to Jesus and he kneels down before him and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do in order to be rewarded with eternal life at the end of the age? What must I do to escape this coming judgment and instead receive eternal reward? What must I do? He's framing it in terms of it being dependent upon him. And Jesus responds to him by saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And some have had trouble making sense of this. Since after all, the Bible does teach that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and so this might seem perplexing to some at first glance, but it makes perfect sense when you consider that this rich young ruler believed Jesus to be merely a teacher, as he states here, and not the eternal Son of God. And so Jesus is challenging him on this point, because as he says, no human being is truly good. Not when you get down to it. All of us have truly and actually and, and, and terribly fallen short of the goodness and glory of God. And Jesus goes on to show him this by rehearsing some of the Ten Commandments. Assuming this man was raised as a good Jewish boy, he would have known the commandments. Jesus starts listing them out. It's not all of them, but particularly those from what we call the second table of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are often uh, organized as having two tables, the first four commandments on the first table having all to do with our relationship to God. And then the, the second table, all having to do with our relationship to our neighbors. First table, no other gods, no idols. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then there's the second table. So honor your father and your mother. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not covet. These are the Ten Commandments, first and second table here. And, and, and the, the second table has to do with the way that we relate to our neighbors, to other people, our families, our church, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors. And, and you might wonder, why would Jesus lift, list off commandments in response to this question? Remember, the young man asked what he must do to inherit eternal life. And truly, if you perfectly keep the will of God revealed in his commandments, then you will be rewarded with eternal life, right? The problem is we don't keep the commandments. The problem is that we're not good. Only God is good. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach this rich young ruler here. 
And so in response to Jesus listening to the commandments, this young wealthy man says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, it seems obvious he's not a very reflective man. He doesn't have a profound knowledge of himself. Pretty naive, I would say. But I also think it, it probably is safe to say that he was fairly moral. He was a fairly moral person. Notice here, Jesus doesn't challenge him on, his, on this point. He doesn't say, no, you haven't, you liar. He doesn't do that because this man probably possessed a good measure of what um, some, some of the reformers called civil righteousness. Civil righteousness is, is that kind of righteousness in humanity, even amongst people who are not Christians, that leads them to being, by human standards, decent people, good neighbors, decent parents or spouses, good employees, all of that. Civil righteousness is that kind of righteousness that is visible in an outward sense. It's that kind of righteousness that that you wouldn't mind someone having if you live next door to them, even if they're not Christians, right? We have several neighbors on our block that we are delighted to have as neighbors, partly because they're decent, moral people. They're, They're not Christians, but they have civil righteousness, and this rich young man seems to possess a good measure of what we call here civil righteousness. He's, a, he's the kind of neighbor you'd probably like to have. But Jesus shows him that's not enough. And he already knew it wasn't enough, didn't he? Why would he have come up to Jesus in the first place asking what he must do to inherit eternal life if he didn't realize in his heart of hearts that something was missing? Living a moral life is good, But we were made for far more than mere morality. The human heart hungers and aches for far more than living as a decent human being, being a a, a decent neighbor or parent or employee or spouse or citizen. It's good, but human flourishing involves far more than civil righteousness. Friends, we were made for God. We were made for friendship and fellowship With God, we were made for Him to be in His presence and to enjoy His presence. But the problem is, is that the human heart is an idol factory and is constantly being drawn away to any number of gods and not to the one true God, even for those who have this civil righteousness. So Jesus shows this rich young man here that even with his civil righteousness, this is what he lacks. He may have done a superb job by human standards in keeping the second table of the law, but in his life, in that very moment even, he had actually broken the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, because he worshipped and served and loved his wealth and treasured his wealth more than the God-man who is standing right in front of him. This is what he lacks. So Jesus lovingly exposes this. He says, Jesus looking at him, loved him, Jesus loved this man, He loved this man, so what he's about to say is not coming from a place of of anger or disgust. It's coming from a place of love. He says, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. He says, one thing is lacking. He actually tells him four things. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, come and follow me. That's four things. But it's actually one thing. And that one thing is to topple the idol of wealth off the throne of your heart and ultimately treasure me instead. He's essentially saying, friend, 
mere morality or civil righteousness or whatever is not satisfying you. And in the end, when the time comes for God to grant you eternal life or eternal condemnation, your civil righteousness will not save you because you still worship an idol in your heart. And so when that day comes, your morality, your riches, they won't save you, but I will. So let go of it all, follow me, enter my kingdom like a little child, empty-handed, open-handed, come. Friends, don't make the mistake of thinking that mere morality or that civil righteousness is sufficient for you. Don't think that, you know, going to church, living a decent life, being a good neighbor is sufficient for you. It's not. You can live like that and still worship idols in your heart, live an unfulfilled life, and go to hell. You were made, though, for so much more. You were made for God, for his presence. You were made for eternal life with him. So don't settle for mere morality. Instead, treasure Jesus Christ above all. Which young man, however, refused Jesus. It's like that meatloaf song, I would do anything for love. But I won't do that. I would do anything for eternal life. But not that. I won't give up my, my riches. Tell me what I must do. <sighs> I won't do that. I won't give up my money. I won't give up my stuff because I want it more than I want you. And so with that, Jesus moves on to teach his disciples an important lesson about wealth in light of this man's choice. Look at me next at how there's no one who can serve two masters. And that is, that's a, a, no one can serve two masters. That's a reference, of course, to, to a, a direct statement from Jesus in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Jesus says you cannot serve God and money. But more pointedly here, Jesus says some startling things about the dangers of having lots of money and lots of wealth and possessions in the first place. Pick it up in verse 23. Jesus looked around and says, said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Hopefully you can see here how Jesus is speaking of entering the kingdom and following him and having eternal life as all being inseparably related to one another. In fact, I'd say entering the kingdom and following him in last week's text and in this week's text is actually used synonymously. These things are are synonymous, following Jesus, entering the kingdom, and then eternal life is what you will receive at the end of the age if you enter the kingdom and follow Jesus. So Jesus is saying, essentially, it's hard for rich people to become Christians and therefore go to heaven. It's hard. And this surprises the disciples. It says the disciples were amazed at his words. And, and this, that seems strange at first glance in, in some ways. But in that time, And in that place, wealth was often seen as a sign of divine favor. Okay, so it it was often seen as like a reward for faithfulness. The disciples seemingly thought that if someone had wealth, that meant that God was well pleased with them. And if it's hard for someone with whom God is well pleased to enter the kingdom of heaven, then who can? That's probably what they were thinking. And of course, the Bible's teaching, listen, the Bible's teaching about wealth is it's complicated, it's complex. Of course, on the one hand, if someone is wealthy, if someone has wealth, God is sovereign. It's ultimately because God has provided that. Monetary provision is, in one sense, a blessing from God. As Paul says, 1 Timothy 6, 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, don't be prideful, 
nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Riches are not certain. Don't set your hope on that. Instead, set your hope on God, he says. Listen, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It is God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Christians are not ascetics. We don't believe everyone should take a vow of poverty and live in a cave and eat mud for the rest of their lives. No, God provides us with everything richly to enjoy. We should be clear on that. However, we would also do well to recognize the dangers of wealth and being rich and having lots of stuff. And Jesus is emphatic on this point here because he he doubles down. He restates this principle. He says, Jesus said to him again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier, listen, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Well, that goes even further. It's not just difficult. It's impossible. A camel going through the eye of a needle is not possible. A camel is a big animal, right? And the eye of a needle is this tiny little hole at the end of a needle that you put a piece of string through when you're sewing. A camel can't go through that. It's not possible. A camel can't fit through the eye of a needle. And, and, And people have tried to kind of soften what Jesus is saying here by saying that there's some gate in Jerusalem that Jesus was referring to that camels would go through and they'd kind of get down on their knees to go through and enter, or that he wasn't actually talking about a camel. Let's just be very clear. That's entirely bunk. There's no such thing. It's not true. When Jesus says camel here, I can read Greek. It means camel. When he says the eye of a needle, he's talking about the eye of a needle, right? It's, it's the precise point he's trying to make is that it's impossible. And the disciples continue to be shocked at this. And so they respond, then who can be saved? And that's a good question. It's a good question because in all reality, it's actually, salvation is actually impossible in the first place. Right? No, no one can be saved if left to their own devices. We just read Ephesians 2 earlier that said that all are dead in trespasses and sins apart from the resurrecting grace of Jesus Christ. We're spiritually dead apart from the awakening, reviving, saving, redeeming, resurrection power of Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit entering our hearts and making us alive in him. We're spiritually dead apart from that. And dead people don't rise unless God gives them life. And so Jesus says, he answers the disciples, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. It's impossible for a rich person or anyone to be saved in and of themselves, but it's not impossible with God. God can do all things. God can raise the dead. God can save anybody. God can awaken any heart. He can effectually call anyone. He can irresistibly draw the most resistant person on this planet. We believe that around here. However, I don't want us to miss the main thrust of this passage and what it says about the dangers of wealth. So we could do that, right? We we could skate right over Jesus' teaching and warnings about the dangers of wealth here and say, oh, we're Calvinists. 
We believe God can save anybody. So we don't need to worry about the warnings concerning wealth here. Yes, God can save anybody. But we don't skirt over human responsibility. That's not Calvinism. That's hyper-Calvinism. We don't skate over human responsibility. We are morally responsible creatures. We have been called to respond to the gracious invitation of Jesus Christ to come and to repent and to discard our idols. And we don't, we, we won't enter his kingdom. We won't have eternal life apart from that. And so the warnings here are real and we must heed them. And that goes for us all. That goes for all of us. Some of us might think here that these warnings are real and important, but that they apply to others, not to me. Almost no one thinks themselves rich, of course. Rich people are always those people that have more money than me. Jeff Bezos is rich. Elon Musk is rich. I'm not rich. Not so fast. Don't dismiss Christ's warning concerning wealth so quickly as applying merely to others and not to you, because the reality is, most of us, almost all of us in this room, are fabulously rich, are fabulously rich. Most of us, almost all of us, live lives of extreme comfort and wealth. It's, it's asinine for people who have homes and clothes and multiple pairs of shoes and multiple coats and air conditioning in their house and smartphones in their pockets, and running water, and dishwashers in their kitchen, and cars in a garage, or having a garage in the first place, having pets, toilets that flush your waste away, paved streets in front of your house, ambulances and police at your beck and call, televisions, so many other comforts and luxuries and conveniences to think that they're anything other than filthy, stinking rich. Don't be deluded. You are wealthy. Don't think that these warnings are for other people. They're for us. They're for me. They're for you. And we need to heed them because, listen, it's, it's not a sin to be rich. Please don't hear me saying that it is. Don't feel guilty for being a Westerner who lives an extremely comfortable life. But be alert because it's, it's not a sin to be rich, but it is seductive. It's seductive. It's so seductive Riches can so easily entice you into all sorts of idolatry and self-reliance. They're often a means through which we, we acquire other idols. They provide myriad temptations to idolatry. Riches make you so comfortable in this world that you give very little thought to the next. Riches and wealth and myriad possessions are so enticing that they can so easily become so much more precious to you than God, and that's dangerous because no one can serve two masters. You will have one master. You can't serve both God and money. You can't serve God and stuff. You can't serve God and comfort. You can't serve God and anything else. You've got to pick one master because you will give your ultimate allegiance to someone or something. Theologian Bob Dylan put it best. you got to serve somebody. You will serve one master. That's discipleship 101. The question is, what will you serve? What will you treasure? What will be most precious to you? And so, does, does this all mean that you, right now, 
are being specifically called to give up all of your riches, all your possessions? Maybe. I, I can't answer that for you. I'm taking into the, the entirety of the scriptures into account. It's obvious that this requirement is not laid on all. There are plenty of examples of wealthy people in Scripture who are not called upon to do such a thing. There are two in Mark's Gospel. There's a a, a woman in Mark 14, and then Joseph of Arimathea in Mark 15. James' epistle, he gives similar counsel as Paul in in 1 Timothy 6.17. He says the wealthy in his audience are, are not to completely give up their wealth. He doesn't say that, but he does say that they're called to generosity and to not trust in their riches. Zacchaeus, which in Luke's Gospel is set up as a, a juxtaposition with this rich young ruler here, it's a wee little man, wee little man was he, Zacchaeus, you know him, climbed up in the sycamore tree. He, he, was not, he was not called upon to give away all of his wealth, but he gave away a great deal of it. And there are many other examples in Scripture of, of wealthy people. There are many other examples of, of, of Christ's words to them or the Bible's words to them that don't require to give away all. Sometimes it's some. Sometimes there's nothing particularly required as it relates to to wealth. And so, all of this to say, there's no clear formula for how rich people ought to treat their wealth if they're to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And so, some might be called upon to give away all for the sake of Christ and His gospel. All are called to generosity, but some might be specifically called to give away all for the sake of Christ and His gospel. Maybe some of you, in order to cross oceans and cultures for the sake of Jesus, will need to give up everything. Homes and career and plans and being close to family and cars and western comforts and conveniences, all for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Some of you maybe are called to give up a, well, a very well-paying job and a nice home and cars and whatnot to go into some sort of vocational ministry here or something along those lines, but there's no clear formula here for what it looks like for each specific person. But here's what is required of all. Subjugating everything in life to the lordship and mastery of Jesus. Giving him all your heart, treasuring him above all. All else, and, and some of you hear that and you, automatic, you automatically think, I am so glad Jesus just wants my heart, not my money. I don't think you understand what we're saying. Discipleship to Jesus, following Jesus, entering his kingdom means handing everything up, everything in life up to him. Some of those things he might give you back. But all are called to give all up to him. Discipleship means subjugating everything in life to the lordship and mastery of Jesus. I love how how James Edwards puts it. He says, the call to follow Jesus does not constitute an additional obligation in life, but rather judges, replaces, and subordinates all obligations and allegiances to the one who says, follow me. Anything, anything. Even obligation to parents is a hazard if it impedes the following of that call. Following Jesus doesn't necessarily or automatically require some additional obligations like being single or giving up wealth or selling your house or going against your parents' wishes or or whatever, but it might. 
Because following Jesus judges, replaces, and subordinates all obligations and allegiances to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Following Jesus means ridding all of yourself, ridding yourself of all other competing masters, offering everything to him with open hands and saying, take it or let me keep it, I'm yours. Here's my wealth, my work, my family, my friends, my possessions, any power I might have, any peace that I seek, any comfort or convenience I desire. Here's sex, social media. Here's my entire self. It's all yours. Take it all. And if you choose to give me back some of these things and take others, I will be content so long as I have you. I want you. That's the kind of posture required for disciples of Jesus Christ because no one can serve two masters. And perhaps one of the greatest scandals today in American Christianity is that we've bought into believing that we think we can. My hunch is that if this rich young ruler approached your, your average American Christian or pastor today and asked this sort of question, he'd be led in the sinner's prayer, he'd be baptized. He'd be added to the church. It's pretty moral too. He might even chair the elder board. All while he secretly, perhaps even unknowingly to himself, worships and serves his wealth and stuff over and against Jesus Christ. And maybe that describes some of us in this room. Even right now, some of us are being called into some serious self-examination. Maybe some of us in this room want our stuff and our wealth more than we want Christ and his gospel. Maybe some of us in this room are trying, even right now, to serve two masters. To withhold certain treasures in our heart from Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying to you, I love you, I won't share you. Just as a husband or wife won't share their spouse with others, Jesus will suffer no rivals in your love and loyalty to him. He beckons us all to treasure him above all because no one can serve two masters. So I would call you to treasure Christ above all because there's nothing worth choosing over him. We see that here in verses 28 to 31. Peter, after hearing Jesus' words, Perhaps seeking some form of reassurance at this radical call. This is radical. And he's going, ooh, I see the, the, how radical this is. I need some reassurance that, that I'm, I've entered the kingdom. I'm actually following Jesus here. And so he says, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus so sweetly, he just affirms Peter and his disciples so, so sweetly, so kindly. He says, truly I say to you. There's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And that's a shocking statement. If you leave behind earthly goods and treasures and relationships for me and for the sake of my gospel, Jesus says, you'll get a 100-fold return on your investment. You, you won't outgive God here. Even if you're called upon to give up certain creature comforts, certain gifts and pleasure, certain common graces for the sake of Christ and His gospel, God's generosity will so outshine yours, He'll give you far more than you ever give up for the sake of Christ. And listen, part of what's so astonishing is that He says, now and this time, You'd expect him to say in the age to come, and he does. 
He also says, now and this time. Now, what is that? Is that some sort of prosperity gospel promise? Is this Kenneth Copeland's life verse here? No. There's some profound implications in the state, however, in the statement for how we live life together as a church. Jesus is not giving some sort of prosperity gospel promise that if you sow a seed right now, I'll give you a Tesla. It's nothing like that. He's saying that if you give up family, friends, homes, lands, whatever, for the sake of the gospel, if following me costs you that, you're getting that in the church anyways. You, you will get family in the church. Those of you who, who, are, who are wounded, suffering on this Mother's Day because you've lost mothers, you've lost children, or, or, or you don't have children, you want children, but you don't have any, there's a precious promise to you is that you get, church, look around this room, you get mothers, you get children in this room, you get people in this room that you get to call family, and that is a precious gift. You get a people Jesus says, that won't let you go homeless or hungry. You'll get a people who will have your back no matter what when worse comes to worst. Some of you have tangibly experienced that in this church. Others will too. And and so from time to time, I I like to put this reminder out there from the pulpit. I'm going to take this as an opportunity to do this now. That if you belong to this church, and you have a need, and you make that need known, it will be met. If you have a need, and you make it known, it will be met. This church, if you make your need known, will not let you go homeless, will not let you go hungry or exposed, so long as it's within our power to do so. We're called to that here. It's also a challenge to us as a church. I say that from up here, fully realizing that I don't make that promise as an individual, right? We make it together as a community. I I can't fulfill that promise as an individual, but we can as a community. That promise can be fulfilled as we work together as a local church to fulfill it and to give generously and to open our homes and our arms and our hearts to one another in love. And that's just one reason, just one why it's so worth choosing Jesus over anything else. In Jesus, you get a great, big family. You get a people who will care for you and who will be there for you. In the church, you get get houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children and lands and so much more. With persecutions, Jesus says he didn't want you to get the wrong impression. It's It's not as if you just ride a comfy pillow up to heaven. There's a cross to bear here. There's a cross to pick up. There's difficulties to endure. There's persecutions to be experienced. But there's a family provided to make it all bearable and endurable. That's one reason why it's so worth choosing Jesus. And that's just in this life. This is one blessing in this life. What's more is that he says you also get, in the age to come, eternal life. Remember, that's That's what started this whole story and discussion to begin with. How do I get eternal life? You get it by coming to Jesus. It's another reason it's so worth choosing Jesus over anything else because with Jesus, you get eternal life. You get it by coming to Jesus in, in the way that we've already described. And if you come to him, if you choose him over anything else, everything else, you get eternal life. You get resurrection and the life everlasting as we confessed earlier. 
You get to be with Jesus and his people. You get Jesus and his people in the perfect world he's preparing for us forever and ever. You get to feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You get to escape the wrath and judgment to come. You get to dwell in a new heaven, in a new earth, in an enduring world of abundant beauty and goodness where the wine never stops flowing, the joy never stops fulfilling your heart. And you get that all because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Because this rich young man in this passage is not the only rich ruler in this passage Jesus himself was the richest of rulers. He's the one who from eternity past experienced nothing but the praises and perfections and pleasures of heaven. And yet, who essentially sold it all to step into our world and into our humanity. And who took on the form of a lowly servant and being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross for us as Philippians 2 tells us. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, though he was rich, yet for your sake, for your sake, he became poor. That's for you. He became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. He was the rich ruler who gave up all to have us, who gave far more than anything he's calling to give us to give away so that we might be with him and with him have a hundredfold more than whatever we could possibly give for the sake of his name. There's no mere morality that can save, but Jesus can save. There's no one who can serve two masters, but Jesus is the best master of all. He's worth treasuring above all else. He's worth choosing above all else because if you choose him over anything else, you get him and with him you get all things. You get every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1.3 tells us. You get life and life abundant forever and ever and ever. That's why you ought to love and treasure Jesus above all else. Some of you, College students, graduating, we've loved having you here if you're leaving us after this Sunday. Been blessed by you. We hope you've been blessed by us. You're entering into this new season of life where perhaps most of you will start to gain these sorts of things. Jobs and families and homes and lands and spouses and children. And that's good. These are wonderful gifts, blessings to enjoy. But I pray that you remember that nothing is more precious than Jesus Christ. There's no spouse, no home, no job, no child that will be to you what he is to you and that can give you what he gives you. Hold all your plans with open hands. Leave all of your desires open to him. Give them all up to him and let him alone be your master. Mothers, it's Mother's Day. This is my Mother's Day sermon. We honor you. We love you, moms. You have a sacred and important calling on your life. But part of that great calling is teaching and showing your children that Jesus is better than anything else. You resolve to raise your children in a home wherein Jesus is seen and shown to be more precious than anything. Tell them that he is with your words, but then show them by your living example, show them that Jesus is more precious than wealth and work, family and friends, property and possessions. 
very easy for us as Americans to tell our children one thing, that Jesus is the most important treasure of all. And show that school and jobs and money and little league and all the rest of it actually takes priority. In the end, none of those things will last. Only Jesus and life eternal in him will last. That's why he's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's why we must all come to Jesus with open hands. Come entrusting yourself entirely to him and treasure him. Love him. Find him more precious than anything. Treasure him above all. Let's pray. Father, seal this word upon our hearts. If there's anything that was untrue or not helpful, wipe it from our memory. But what was good, what was true, what was in accordance with your word, press it into our hearts, pierce our hearts with it so that we might be changed, so that we might treasure Christ above all and find him more precious than anything. And if that means giving up some things, giving them up, whatever the cost is, we want Jesus. May that be true of all of us. Through his name, in his name we pray.